Leonard Lopate at large. I'm Leonard Lopate. We like to think that really good ideas sell themselves, but David Fenton says that's not true. And he says, quote, we don't like selling. That's manipulative. That's dirty. Well, when you're selling the truth is not dirty, it's actually necessary. His new book, The Activist's Media Handbook, Lessons from 50 Years as a Progressive Agitator, is part memoir, part instruction manual, published by EarthAware Editions, and brings David Fenton to our show now. Welcome. Thank you very, very much, Leonard. You say that the lessons you've learned over 50 years in progressive public relations are being adopted by the right-wing Republican machine more effectively than Democrats. Haven't the recent election results called that into question somewhat? No, I don't think so, though thank goodness we squeaked by. It was awfully close, wasn't it? So I think that uh, generally uh, Republicans and conservatives focus more on mass persuasion and communications and messaging. And we kind of uh, are uh, scatterbrained about it largely. You know, you've noticed the conservatives have an echo chamber where they all say the same thing about issues pretty much every day. And we tend to have the Tower of Babel, uh, you know, anarchists at heart. So, you know, I try to take a look at why this is. And, you know, I borrow a lot from the great uh, linguist, Professor George Lakoff out here in Berkeley, who says that the Republicans tend to come from business school where they've had to master cognitive and marketing science to sell products and services largely to advance their own careers. So it's a natural orientation for them. Our folks generally come from the humanities, the sciences, and the law. And we have what Lakoff calls uh, the enlightenment fallacy, as you were saying, that a great idea just magically persuades whether people hear it or not. And the brain doesn't work that way. The brain absorbs and learns from the repetition of simple messages. And we tend not to like simplifying things, and we hate repeating ourselves. Lakoff says that all politics are moral politics and that progressives will fail if they cannot communicate with people in simple language that connects with them on the level of their moral values. Um, What are some examples of the simple language that he's talking about? And what about where the... Uh, what language have progressive views that's failed? Well, I think a lot of the woke language, unfortunately, while it might be appropriate in certain small circles, is certainly not mass communication language. Uh, People don't know what a lot of these words even mean. I mean, take the issue I focus on predominantly now, which is climate change. And I focus on it because, as you know, if we don't solve it, we may not get to solve much else. So the language of the climate movement, I can tell you from research and common sense, is largely unintelligible to the American public. So, for example, when we say the word net zero or emissions or carbon, uh, very few people know what we mean. Or frack, for that matter. That's right. Hmm. Now, you know, Lakoff and the other linguists have shown that people develop actual mental circuitry through uh, repeated exposure to language over their lifetime. Those are called mental frames. So when I say net zero, 
I'm not activating any existing mental frame in people's brains. So most people, unless you're part of the climate community, don't really know what I mean. Now, when I say the word pollution, everybody instantly knows what I mean, and nobody likes it. Hmm. So what the research shows is we should talk about how oil, coal, and gas are putting a blanket of pollution around the Earth that is trapping heat that used to go back out to space. And this is making the storms and droughts stronger and melting the ice. And the good news is we know what to do. We need to stop polluting and phase out pollution, and then the Earth will get back to a manageable temperature. So these are simple concepts for people. And if we were to use them in a unified way and repeat them, we'd make a lot of progress. Well, you give a number of examples of strong public relations strategy that helped progressives achieve a role. And one was Don't Frack New York. Yoko Ono and her son, Sean, hired your then-company, Fenton Communications, to stop fracking in New York State. And she also formed artists against fracking uh, when they feared that a pipeline for frack gas would run near their home in upstate New York uh, and listed a bunch of celebrities uh, to join them, Susan Sarandon, Paul McCartney and some others. But I, I've spoken to a number of people, and they're not even sure what fracking meant. And, and then you called the byproduct from fracking methane gas and not natural gas. Why? Well, natural sounds good, doesn't it? Uh, and, uh, you know, if we if we call bad things good names, it's confusing to people. Uh, I can tell you from the data that when you say methane gas, people start to get concerned. When you say natural gas, it sounds relaxing and positive to people. I mean, it's true, not a lot of people know what fracking specifically is, but a lot of people have heard about it. I didn't know it was happening in New York State. I thought that it was happening in the West mostly. Well, it certainly happens a lot in Pennsylvania. You may know that. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's so the West to me. I'm in <laughs> I understand. Well, it's only two and a half <laughs> hours away. But the, uh, you know, it wasn't just the artists and the celebrities that pressured Cuomo successfully to ban fracking in New York State. And there's only two states that have banned it, Vermont and New York. It was the combination of the attention the artists got for the issue and a very robust grassroots movement that had been working for some years to try to stop this. And it's when those two things came together, the grassroots and the celebrity, that Cuomo was checkmated and really Which did Cuomo? the right thing. Sorry? Which Cuomo? We've had two Governor Cuomos. <laughs> yeah, well... There's the you know, good one the and the good, bad one. <laughs> I, this was both. I think the good one banned fracking, and then the bad one took revenge on me and blacklisted me from working for any New York State agency, like at a Martin Scorsese movie or something. But it definitely was more than one, Andrew, yes. Now, you, you say that there are any number of words that uh, carry a, a negative weight. Alar, pesticides, for example... Yes. And, you know, this is I talk about in my book, one of the one of the campaigns I'm really most proud of, although if you Google me, you'll see that the right is still mad at me about this 32 years later. Um, you know, Aller was a, a carcinogenic pesticide used on apples that was very bad for kids, because as any parent knows, 
uh, kids consume a lot of apple juice and applesauce for their size. And health authorities have been trying to ban this for years with no uh, success. And we, uh, on behalf of the Natural Resources Defense Council, took this story to 60 Minutes back at a time when, you know, half the country watched it in 1989. And the next morning, the whole country stopped buying apples. The bottom fell out of the apple market. And the manufacturer of this carcinogen, Uniroyal, was forced to unilaterally withdraw it from the market with no court case, no legislative action, no regulatory action. The people banned Alar. The chemical industry was unhappy about this. So they sued me, 60 Minutes and NRDC. It went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. We won at every level. But, a, a different um, Supreme Court. Who knows what would happen? Yeah, a today. very different Supreme Court. But they found we had not libeled their apples. Mm. Science was on our side. Now, the other interesting thing about that episode is, of course, here we are in this age of horrible and intentional disinformation. And you can chart some of the beginnings of it from that period in the late 80s when Despite all the scientific evidence and that the studies we were using were peer-reviewed, the right started a drumbeat saying that it was a scare, we had no science, there was nothing wrong with these apples, and that was all not true. But they repeated it enough that it got very sticky, and a lot of people still think that today. Well, I was wondering uh, about it in general. Uh, despite all the negative news about Herschel Walker in his past, he still may still wind up being elected to the Senate. He may. Well, you know, the right has built a media machine, and it's a disinformation machine, and it's very intentional. You know, I trace it in my book to when Rupert Murdoch bought the New York Post, and, you know, that was very intentional to establish a beachhead for uh, all this falsehood in the media capital of the world. And so now they have Fox News and they have their echo chamber. And, you know, I work with some conservatives, but it's just true that so much of the conservative media arena is falsehood. It's intentional for money and power. And so it has really misled about 30, 35 percent of the country into a kind of false reality. You know, pollsters used to say, that what they would find is Americans had different points of view about the same facts. Now they find people have their own facts. I think that uh, the Murdoch and his empire, his evil empire, and the, uh, the lack of any kind of uh, liability on the Internet for false material, which we could talk about, you know, has really hurt this country and something needs to be done about it. In a how-to guide, you say that we need to craft simple messages everyone can understand, which seems obvious, but uh, why isn't everyone doing it? <laughs> well, that's a deep psychological question, Leonard, that I'm not sure I can answer. You know, again, I, I think that, um, you know, in academia, people are rewarded for specialization and complexity, not for simplifying things. And you know, you're not rewarded for repeating yourself. And as you know, the news media hates to repeat things. So the, the very things that we know work to change public opinion and the brain, our community kind of doesn't like. And the other side has no such problems. Now, I'm not arguing at all for repeating things that aren't true. I would never do that. 
Um, but we do need to simplify things so that people can grasp them. We really need to do that. Well, getting back to global warming, uh, what about the slogan on greenhouse gas emissions to get to net zero by 2050? It's brief, but you say it's not simple enough, and you suggest instead our children deserve a future, so we must act against polluters? Well, that's going to be a much more effective way to talk about this, yes. Net zero, again, people don't know what that means. And so you can't use language that people don't understand. You know, this is a more delicate aspect of this, but, uh, you know, the phrase climate justice, you know, is a very laudable uh, and compelling phrase within our movement. But the public doesn't know what it means. You know, when you say the word justice, most people think of the courts and the police, not the climate. So if you're going to rally a mass movement to defeat the evil fossil fuel industry, which is what we need to do, only a mass movement can defeat them. There's nothing else. You say we need to speak to the heart first, the mind second. Yes, that's certainly true. As you were saying before, Lakoff talks about how effective stories are moral stories. And it's also true that successful social movements in history are those that seize and hold the moral high ground. So why so, was MAGA so effective? Well, MAGA is very simple. Make America great again. And, you know, Trump, unfortunately, is a master of this. You know, he, he, he knows it from his television experiences that that's how people learn. Now, we hate that. And. Uh, but that stuff works. So we have to create language and imagery that we can repeat that simplifies the truth for people so they can access it and so public opinion can change. I'll give you another example. So only 20% of Americans know that all the climate scientists agree that we're the ones heating the earth. Most people still think that there's enormous scientific disagreement and there's none. Now, the fossil fuel industry, they spread that doubt, that lie that scientists don't agree. But we've never reached the public simply and effectively with the truth about this. And when you do experimentally, when people learn that all the scientists agree, they all want to do something about it. So you have to ask the question, why don't the massively funded environmental NGOs start unifying their messaging to tell people that all the scientists agree, mm -hmm. then things would change. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is David Fenton, who's written a book called The Activist's Media Handbook, Lessons from 50 Years as a Progressive Agitator. It uh, is published by Earth Aware. Uh, this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM. And we are... Uh, also available online at WBAI.org. Uh, you, uh, you argue that stories need good and bad characters. Does every issue have good and bad characters? Well, effective stories, you know, are like that. I mean, just look at the fairy tales. Uh, look at Joseph Conrad. And we do have to simplify uh, who uh, are generally leading us in a good direction and who are not. I mean, I mean, for example, back to climate, it is a sad truth that there are a small group of mostly white men who run the fossil fuel industries who 
seem quite willing to sacrifice the whole planet so they can make money for another 25 years or so. Even so, a couple of people in Congress, including Well, in, well those are Democrats. very agents. Yes, those are the agents of those fossil fuel uh, executives. Uh, they're, and they're certainly reprehensible. And if you mean Joe Manchin, yeah, he I mean, he's once he just got mad at Biden for saying that we need to phase out coal. I mean, I guess Manchin just wants to flood New York City and he wants to flood all the coastal cities of the world, which is what will happen if we keep using coal. So, you know, so but people don't know who are the people willing to sacrifice the future for their short term profits. What are their names? What do they look like? So I think this is a, a, the next frontier. You know, when I was active in the anti-apartheid movement, we ran ads as we were trying to pressure American companies to pull out of South Africa. And we put a photo of the head of a company that refused to withdraw, juxtaposed with a photo of the South African police beating up children. And we'd say, meet so-and-so, mm -hmm. a face behind apartheid. And these kinds of campaigns got a lot of companies to pull out. So we need to effectively personify who's in the way. You know, Bernie Sanders is very good at this, talking about who the billionaires are that are ripping everybody off and not paying workers and not paying taxes. So, yes, again, I know it sounds simple, but stories need, are, need to be moral stories, and moral stories have good and bad characters in them. But does every issue have good and bad players? Well, I'm not sure every issue does. I mean, life is pretty complex. It doesn't apply to everything. But when it comes to the most important issues, I would say, yes, it does. You know, who's transferring the wealth of working people to the top one-tenth of one percent? You know, who's responsible for all this in income inequality? There are, you know, groups of people responsible for that who set out to do that and succeeded. So we do need to identify who they were so that who they are so that people can counter them. You also say repeat your messages. Why is that so important? And what are the best platforms? Where do activists need to be to get their message out, the ones that they want to repeat? Well, the cognitive science proves that it's repetition that teaches people and changes public opinion. You know, advertising executives have known this for decades. You're old enough to remember the old Dial Soap campaign, right? Aren't you glad you used Dial? I'm old enough to, to say, remember a lot of stuff. I was, I was just <laughs> 82 years old. Oh, uh -huh. great. Yeah, I'm only 70. And by the way, I used to be a DJ on WBAI doing a jazz history show in the late 1970s, a little trivia. Uh, well, I, I started uh, playing music on WBAI in 1957. Wow, that's amazing. And, uh, and, you know, I would say WBAI is definitely partly responsible for the subversive course of my life in listening to Bob Fass in mm -hmm. the 60s. Uh, and Abby Hoffman on the air. That had a huge impact on me, and, and, and I, I'd like to celebrate it. In fact, you uh, talk about uh, Abby as uh, a, a mentor. What are some of the lessons you learned from him? Uh, keep a sense of humor. Don't take yourself too seriously. And the left right now kind of takes itself seriously, don't you think? Um, <laughs> Abby was a genius. He was a unfortunately, a, a somewhat mentally ill genius later in life. But part of Abby's genius was, look, 
he started the so-called Youth International Party, the, the Yippies, right? And it was a huge myth. And yet, the New York Times and the Evening News would say, today, the Youth International Party did so-and-so. And I'd be like, what? It's Abby and four of his friends. How did he do that? So Abby was brilliant at creating mythologies for the public good and using them to get the media to communicate social change values to the population against the war and for civil rights and the counterculture. He was amazing at that. Do you remember that it used to be illegal to wear an American flag as a piece of clothing in this country? And Abby used to wear an American flag shirt, and he was arrested for this often. One of my favorite moments was he went on the most popular talk show of the time, the Merv Griffin Show, whose producer was the evil Roger Ailes, who went on later to start Fox. And so in response to Abby's flag shirt, Roger blacked out half the screen. You could only see Merv Griffin. You couldn't see Abby. You could only hear him. So that was a yippee action for sure. And it made the papers. It got attention. It sure did. Or when Abby and a group went to the New York Stock Exchange and threw dollar bills down on the trading floor, all trading stopped as the traders scrammed to pick up the dollar bills. Yeah. <laughs> and that was a great symbolic news action. I mean, Abby was uh, really brilliant. And if people don't know who he is, a lot of young people don't. Uh, he's uh, Sasha he Baron Cohen on the Netflix film, The Trial of the Chicago 7. You say, uh, I guess it's along these lines, practice framing issues your way. What, what, what is the right way? Uh, you also say we shouldn't repeat the other side's framing. In other words, we shouldn't... Uh, were, were some of the political ads that we saw recently that uh, showed the uh, the opponent saying something that uh, the candidate felt was terrible, was that a mistake? Were they actually running campaign ads for their opponents, in effect? It can be a mistake. It's a common mistake, yes. And, you know, Lakoff, right, the linguist writes about this extensively, you know, don't repeat the frames of the other side. I mean, I remember... Uh, one of uh, President Biden's climate advisors went on TV uh, uh, not long ago and said, we're not trying to take away anyone's jobs. So what the public hears mm -hmm. when they hear that is you're trying to take away their jobs. So definitely don't repeat the other side's frame. So there's another uh, way of saying it, which is we're trying to create more jobs to do the right thing. Yes, jobs to save the future rather than to destroy it you know, jobs in clean energy of the future rather than dirty energy of the past, jobs in cheaper, cleaner energy rather than increasingly expensive, dirty energy. That all makes sense. You advise using symbolism. Is that what we've been talking about, or, you, or uh, is that a bigger issue? No, symbolism is another form of using existing mental framing or circuitry. Like in the Aller episode we talked about, of course, an apple a day is the symbol of health. So we use that symbol. Mm -hmm. And figures of speech are a form of symbolism also. So yes, again, you want to communicate in ways that you know people are going to be able to grasp and connect with. And then you take them on a journey from there. All too often, the, the people on the left can make the mistake of 
using language that they wish people would understand and that they understand, but it doesn't mean that the public understands it. And so what I hope happens is that we shift our focus outwards again. And in the 60s and early 70s, I would say the left was very good at mass communications and mass persuasion. We even had popular culture doing it with us. But then there was a counter reaction from the right and uh, Lewis Powell, who Nixon later put on the Supreme Court, wrote a very famous memo about how to get young people back to supporting big business and capitalism uh, in the throes of the hippies and Ralph Nader. And he laid out creating the American Enterprise Institute and the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society and all these institutions, which were designed to basically do propaganda for the right. And we never built any institutions, unfortunately, at that scale. And I think that's uh, the next agenda. We need to do that. You advise telling the truth. Well, how can the public determine which side is telling the truth? And uh, sometimes the truth is, is complicated. Yes. Well, of course, that's true. I'm just saying that... Um, we should never intentionally use falsehood. It's unethical, mm -hmm. it'll backfire on you, and it's not our values. So I'm not saying that it's always so simple to discern the precise truth in every aspect. In fact, as you may notice, the epilogue of my book is all about how everything is composed of contradictions mm -hmm. and nothing is black and white. But still, there are essential truths, there are scientific truths, if we keep pumping excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the planet will get too hot. That is a truth. <laughs> uh, is the best way to reach people to use advertising? Because I was wondering about the glut of political ads during the recent campaign and whether they canceled out the candidates' messages. Well, political advertising is, is a different beast. And I don't – I've never uh, – worked on a, a political campaign. I only work on issue campaigns that shape what politicians later feel they can say or do. Um, political ads are, everybody hates them. And, and you know, they're often just crazy, horrible, negative. And they also, very few of them touch the heart or are memorable. Most of them are fear-mongering, at least, uh, you know, a lot of this recent wave of crime ads we were all barraged with. Well, well some of them, uh, which... Uh revealed the candidate to be an awful person didn't seem to matter. Those candidates still got a lot of votes. Well, they were preying on fears, which, of course, Republicans have been doing since Richard Nixon and Willie Horton. And, you know, that's their strategy. But my point about advertising is this. So, you know, in the old days, when I first started Fenton Communications in 1982, uh, which is still going strong uh, without me now, uh, it was a lot easier. You know, there were only three television networks, as you know. Mm -hmm. And if you got a, a a story on one or two of them, the whole country knew about it. Those days are long gone. Now it's so now digital advertising to some degree. Uh, it's generally cost effective. Is it is it effective? If you if you do it properly and you you have moving and and moral and sticky and emotional images and language and you tell stories with it yes it's very effective you know my point is just that because public opinion only changes through the repetition of simple messages 
to create sufficient repetition in a fragmented media landscape like we have, part of your arsenal needs to include buying this, unless you can get Mark Zuckerberg to give you lots of free ad credits. And buying social media advertising, you know, you don't scale it until you prove what works, and it costs a lot less than people think. You advise recruiting celebrities, influencers, cultural figures. Why do you think Americans are influenced by celebrity endorsements when we're talking about politics? So, again, um, people can only be influenced by information and content that reaches them. They can't be influenced by content that does not reach them. So the job of activists is to create many, many avenues of, through which content can reach the public repeatedly. So that would include, in many cases, the large social media followings of celebrities. Hmm. That's part of our arsenal. It's certainly not the only one. Do you think that Oprah's endorsement of John Fetterman over Mehmet Oz, somebody she uh, played a major role in making famous, was a factor in uh, the the, that election? It might have increased black turnout. I don't really know. I'm not a political expert, but it would seem to me it might have done that, and it was it was a close election. And so, you yes. advise fighting falsehoods and disinformation immediately. What happens if you wait? Does it just sink in and become... Yes. Do you remember in John Kerry's presidential campaign, the so-called swift boat attacks against him, where they turned his... Uh, heroic military service in Vietnam into a liability for him by uh, buying all these ads that said all these falsehoods about him. Mm -hmm. So the Kerry campaign made a decision at that time that not to respond, that it was undignified to respond and that it would all go away. Bob Schrum, who was the media head of the campaign, said it would all go away. And it didn't. It stuck, and it helped defeat him and became his image. So you recommend so, complaining to the source of disinformation? Oh, absolutely. And you see the right does that all the time. They attack the media. They work the refs. And, you know, it, the thing is, if, if you're only attacked from one side in a debate, which side are you going to pay attention to? So when the media makes a mistake, of course we have to let them know. You're listening to Let It Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and see me live at WBAI.org. Can't you feel it in your bones, y'all? A change is coming on From every walk of life People are seeing the light I hope you're enjoying my conversation with David Fenton. If you like hearing discussions of this sort, we hope you'll become a sustaining member of the station, what we call the WBAI Buddy for $10, $15, $20 a month, whatever you can afford. And if you become a BAI Buddy for $20 a month or more, we would be pleased to send you a copy of the book that we've been discussing, The Activist Media Handbook, Lessons from 50 Years as a Progressive Agitator. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI. Dot org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make 
that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at large, and we thank you very much. And return to David Fenton, whose book, The, Me the Activist Media Handbook, Lessons from 50 Years as a Progressive Agitator, is published by EarthAware Editions. Um, he's had a, a, an interesting career, including being director of public relations at Rolling Stone magazine. He he's the co-producer of the No Nukes concert in 1979 at Madison Square Garden. Also helped create J Street, Climate Nexus, the Death Penalty Information Center, Families for a Future. You've been around. Oh. Hello. There's a lot more to do. <laughs> and, and now you've sold your company? Yes, I sold it a few years ago so I could work on climate change communications full time because we, we don't have a sufficiently educated and mobilized public on the most important issue facing humanity, in my opinion. So that's what I want to spend my remaining activist years uh, focusing on. Now, although some midterm election results are still outstanding, most of them have been certified and recorded, and the Democrats did a lot better than predicted. Um, what do you think of how the Democrats have responded to fake news attacks in democracy and uh, the erosion of civility, like the claim that the 2020 election was stolen, uh, calling the January 6 attacks Nancy Pelosi's fault or legitimate political discourse, suggesting that the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, was a result of, of a homosexual lover's quarrel, that mm. Democrats are soft on crime. I'll, I'll just give you a little more and then I'll be quiet for a while. Uh, it's interesting that although they claim Democrats are soft on crime, the fact is that in the last several decades, violent crime has fallen under Democratic administration, risen under Republican administrations. And they also claim Republicans are better at managing our economy, although none of the last 11 recessions began under Republican administrations. Okay, I'll be quiet. <laughs> you don't need to be quiet, Leonard. Um, well, well, I gave I, you a long list of stuff to address. <laughs> well, you know, or stop the steal or all that yeah. stuff. Again, this is my point. The Republicans are very good at creating messages that are simple and they keep repeating them so we all can repeat them back. And Democrats are not generally very good at that. Now, I think in this particular election, it may have been more the Republicans defeating themselves than the Democrats winning. You know, people got scared because of the abortion decision and the, you know, the, the slavish devotion to this false notion of a stolen election, the January 6th uh, uh, riot. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of the electorate got very frightened of this. And in particular, it was heartening, wasn't it, to see that so many young people came out to vote. Um, and I think that made a huge difference because people understood what was at stake. But none of that obviates the need for the Democrats and progressives to be better at mass communications and mass persuasion, to have a more unified echo chamber uh, where we have a message of the day that we repeat, that we all use, and to focus on creating more institutions so we have our own media, uh, because certainly the right has that. Well, as I mentioned, uh, Democrats being accused of soft on crime, despite the fact that uh, the last several decades, violent crime has fallen under Democratic administration, risen under Republican administrations. But 
You didn't hear much of anything like that during the campaign. And uh, the whole business of the economy, despite the fact that nine of the last recessions began under Republican administrations, the Democrats really didn't hit at that. Yes, I think it's true that, you know, it's always the economy stupid and not to have a clear economic message is really a mistake, um, a terrible mistake. Uh, so, you know, and Bernie, of course, has always had a clear economic message. But I'll tell you my theory about Bernie, who, you know, I really admire. I, I think that Bernie probably could have become president. He certainly was appealing across the aisle to lots of working class people of both parties. But I think he made a very stubborn mistake uh, in insisting on calling himself a socialist. Mm -hmm. So talk about mental frames. When you say the word socialist, most Americans think bad. They think so communist. Yeah. Why would you want to burden yourself with that? I think it blocked a certain number of people from hearing Bernie, whose economic analysis of what's happened in our country, the giant and intentional transfer of massive amounts of wealth and income from working people to the top one tenth of one percent. That's actually what has happened. And yet Democrats don't generally reach people with that simple story. Uh, and, and Republicans reach people and say that the problem that has caused this is immigrants. And and so we don't reach them with anything nearly as simple. This is partly, of course, as we know, that the Democrats, some Democrats have conflicts uh, given their funding sources. But we need to tell the people the simple truth and they will respond. And that's certainly part of what happened in this election. But I think it was more probably the Republicans defeating themselves by overreaching, which, you know, extremists usually do. Well, what about the images of the parties? When I was a kid, the Democrats were seen as the party of the working Mostly working men, okay, but working people. And the Republicans were the party of the rich. And if we look at the results uh, during this recent election, many, uh, uh, well, many working people uh, were supporting the Republicans and wealthier people were supporting the Democrats. So what's going on here? Well, I think the, the main thing going on really are two people, Rupert Murdoch and Mark Zuckerberg. Well, Rupert and, Murdoch just came out against Donald Trump. He's really been attacking him in a, a, a viciously. Yes, he's going for Ron Sanctimonious. it's <laughs> true, Who, who's another incipient fascist, by the way, as you may know. The No, I think that there's a chapter in my book called How Rupert Murdoch and Mark Zuckerberg Helped Ruin America, and they really did. Um, by creating a false reality, essentially brainwashing for you know a large segment of the public. So, you know, where does QAnon come from? It comes from people going on Facebook and seeing all this nonsense. And yeah, you know, but I don't get QAnon ads on Facebook. I, I'm on Facebook mostly. No, well, this is the problem, you know, and this and in this problem is also part of the solution. So the the problem with social media, to me, is not the freedom of individuals to post most of what they want. I mean, some hate speech needs to be banned, but generally, 
People should be able to post what they want. That's not the problem. The problem is when the algorithms of these platforms boost to many tens of millions of people the most false, reptilian, salacious, controversial material to keep eyeballs on their platforms for advertisers. And the reason they're able to do this is that the law in the 90s exempted internet platforms from any liability for anything people posted on their platforms. At the time, people thought that it made sense because you wanted the internet to flourish. But as we've seen, again, the problem's not individual posting. It's like if you go to YouTube and YouTube's algorithm figures out your right of center, they're going to start feeding you all this crazy stuff, including climate denial, vaccine denial, all this. And that's intentional, and they should be liable for that. And if they were, they would clean it up. Well, you say, now, you, you say that Congress could easily pass legislation to make social media platforms responsible for algorithms that identify and spread fake news. Uh, but why hasn't it addressed that issue, and why haven't Democrats been pushing for that well, if, if I it's wish been hurting them? I mean, you know, maybe now if the Democrats have another seat in the Senate, this might be possible. You know, look, it's understandable you know, one of the bedrock values of our country is free speech, and it needs to be. But sometimes people take a somewhat absolutist view of this, that there should be no regulation of any kind of speech or any kind of liability. Now, no other industry has a blanket exemption from all liability like the tech companies do. So we need to change that. And I'm hoping that that will happen. You know, there are more people in Congress and the administration who do want to do that. And I think that, uh, you know, there are even uh, uh, people on the right that want to do that. So we're going to have to clean up social media. Now, the, the Fox so-called news problem is, is a different kettle. And, of course, you know, they're facing possible bankruptcy from this libel suit for, uh, the, you know, spreading all this intentional false information about voting machines. But what I remember is that you may is that. Bef until 1984, the Federal Communications Commission had two rules that the courts consistently found consistent with the First Amendment. Remember, one was called the Equal Time Doctrine. One was called the Fairness Doctrine. Mm -hmm. The Equal Time Doctrine meant that you couldn't turn your airwaves over to Trump 100% of the time. You had to give equal time to all major candidates. And the Fairness Doctrine said you couldn't turn your airwaves over to only one point of view. You had to give fair uh, time to different points of view. So Ronald Reagan intentionally repealed those rules. And we, and we see it on cable television now where if you your politics are tend toward one party, you watch one cable network, and if they tend to another, you watch the other another cable network. Yes, and you see, that used to be impossible before uh, when we had these FCC doctrines. Now, when Reagan repealed them, he did it so that right-wingers could dominate talk radio. What Rush Limbaugh eventually did to this country would have been illegal prior to 1984. It couldn't have happened. 
And of course, talk radio is still dominated by all this uh, extreme right disinformation stuff. Although, now, cable, although there have been some court cases that have uh, really punished a few of those people, including what a, a over a billion dollar uh, decision against one of them. Right. Well, thank goodness for that. And look, you what think those that's going to you think that's going to have an, an effect on the others? Yes, I do, but I don't think it's enough. You know. These doctrines were for over-the-air broadcasting in return for the license to use the public airways. You had to adhere to these fairness standards. So cable, of course, is not over the public airways. I think that there are some people in the legal community looking at how we might apply these doctrines to cable since the cables go through all of our communities. Regardless, something has to be done. I, I would say you could either have a democracy or you can have completely and totally false and unregulated social media with no liability, but you can't have both. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is David Fenton, who's written a book called The Activist's Media Handbook, Lessons from 50 Years as a Progressive Agitator. It is published by Earth Aware. Uh, now, uh, should we talk a bit about how you got into all of this? <laughs> you, you grew sure. up in New York's Upper East Side, dropped out of high school? I did. I dropped out of the Bronx High School of Science. Imagine how my mother felt. And I dropped in to what was in the late 1960s, a flourishing alternative media community in New York. And I went to work for the news service for all the anti-war hippie underground newspapers of the time. And there were hundreds around the country. Liberation News Service. And my salary was $25 a week and free communal dinners. You were taking photographs? I was taking photos of riots and tear gas and Black Panthers and weathermen. The Vietnam War of, protests. And a lot of great rock stars. I, I was privileged to photograph Janis Joplin and the Rolling Stones and pretty much everybody back then. So it was heady stuff for a teenager. And you were getting a, a lot of attention, didn't the New York Times and Newsweek, Time Life and others began to take notice of your work? Well, they started printing my photos. And in fact, I used money from an assignment from Life Magazine. That's how I was able to drop out of Bronx Science, was with money paid to me by Life Magazine, by Time, Inc. You know, my, so you my never went was, to college? I never went to college for a day. I never finished high school. Um, in fact, you, know, my, you also dropped your piano lessons in high school. You said that was the dumbest thing you ever did. <laughs> that was really dumb. <laughs> right. I regret that. Every time I sit down at the piano. But my mother was eventually fine because she could show her friends my photographs in the New York Times with my name under it. So then, you know, I was forgiven. Um, but it was a very heady, interesting, utopian, high energy time. Uh, and, and it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun back then. I think the left has less fun now. But what do you uh, think inspired you to become an activist? Is this something you got from your family, or f was it just that the, the times determined it? Well, I write about this in the book. I think it was mostly the disintegration of my family that did it, mm -hmm. not actually from my family. You know, uh, 
my mother was very mentally ill and in and out of mental institutions as I was growing up and my father was, they were divorced, my father was very emotionally absent. So I was kind of on my own from a very early age. And I started seeking out alternative families uh, in these movement groups. And so I think that's part of what happened to me. But you wound up uh, becoming a... uh standout figure on your own. The National Journal called you the Robin Hood of Public Relations. What yeah, did that, that mean nice. to you? Yeah. you? Using the techniques of corporate PR for progressive causes. Well, that's what I set out to do. You know, in uh, when I started Fenton, the firm, in 1982, I mean, public relations basically meant, you know, we'll lie for money. And the firms largely represented polluting companies, foreign dictators. It was pretty dreadful. And they were having a big influence on even fair-minded reporters because, you know, even fair-minded journalists can't help but be influenced by information that reaches them. And if one side only is organized to do that, that's the impact it's going to have. So we decided to start a firm that would work for progressives. And everybody thought I was crazy. And of course, I was. But, uh, it, you know, it, it, it succeeded right away. And we got very involved in fighting Reagan's wars in Central America and helping to reverse apartheid and the nuclear arms race. And the firm is still you know, going strong. It has 120 people in four cities. I'm just not involved in it anymore. Because you said earlier you sold it to work on climate change full time. That's right. Yes, that's true. How do you think the Biden administration is doing with climate change? Well, that's an interesting topic. Um, you know, I think that Biden is very sincere about wanting to do something about this. And of course, I hear a butt coming here. Yeah, there's a butt. <laughs> Everything's made of contradictions, right? Um, and they've passed the most far reaching and important climate legislation in American history. And that's all to be saluted. But it's not nearly enough. And I'm disappointed at the same time. You know, Biden has never had a public meeting with climate scientists, never. He has never given a primetime speech about the most important issue facing humanity. Uh, you know, he, you, he'll, you'll never hear Biden say forthrightly that climate change is caused by pollution from burning oil, coal and gas. He will not say it. And he uses language like the word existential threat, which very few people understand in our country. Um, so I think he's a good person. He cares about this. He understands it. I think he wants to do the right thing. I, I, from my understanding, that there are some political people at the White House who actually hold him back. And then, then there are people in Congress. He has to, uh, even though he had a, a majority in the Senate, he didn't have a real majority when it came to certain things like this. No, there's no question that reality caused him to do quite a dance. You know, uh, you know, he had to 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 pay careful attention to Prime Minister Joe Manchin. And and uh, there were two senators actually. Was yes, Christian, former yeah, Green Christian. Party cinema. Yeah, yes. what a disappointment she's turned out to be, hasn't she? Yes. Well, uh, yeah, she used to be in the Green Party. 
I mean, I don't know what happened to that woman. No, he, he look, again, I, I celebrate the legislation. I'm just saying, in my view, if, if the White House had made, using the bully pulpit, Hedy Roosevelt's phrase, to raise public education awareness and urgency about climate, he, he might have gotten uh, more in that legislation. We have so, we yeah. have just a minute left. Is there anything sure. you want to say in summation? I think that uh, my message is that if progressives want to win, they need to pay attention to modern communications and simplify their messages and repeat them and make sure they're reaching people. And we need to use language everybody can understand. And if that, and that's my simple message. And I thank you so much for being on our show today. All right. Thank you, Leonard. And thanks for all you've done for New York. And David Fenton, the, the book we've been discussing, The Activist Media Handbook, Lessons from 50 Years as a Progressive Agitator. It's published by Earth Aware Editions. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Kate Guan Allison for her help in preparing today's interview. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can write to me. My email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, we're hoping that you'll become a sustaining member of BAI, what we call a BAI buddy, uh, for 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, whatever dollars a month, which allows us to plan for the future. And if you become a, a member for $20 a month or more, we will be happy to send you a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Activist Media Handbook by David Fenton. Or if you become a member, a one-time member for $50 or more, uh, we also would be happy to send you a copy. Again, the number 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. Either way, I hope you can call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations, we don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. And we are the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. Keep us alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. Thank you so much for listening.